Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. Paul writes to his disciple Timothy and says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father, help us to see Jesus today. It is in his name that we ask this. Amen. Today, obviously, Christians all over the world gather to worship and to rejoice, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is risen. And so this morning, we're breaking from our series in the Gospel of Luke to consider together the significance and the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we focus our minds and hearts on the resurrection of our Lord, we turn to uh, a passage, not in the Gospels, but rather in what are called the pastoral epistles, specifically Paul's first epistle to Timothy. This is one of the important places where Paul helps us to understand the meaning and significance of the resurrection. Now, if you look at verses 14 and 15 of the passage we've just read, you'll see the Apostle Paul telling us why he's writing this letter. That's all an epistle is, you know. It's just a letter. Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus. Paul had planted a church there. It was a new church. It was a, a, a church plant, if you will. And Paul had to go on and do some other things and plant other churches elsewhere. So he left his disciple Timothy there in Ephesus to establish that church, to put things in order. And he says there in verse 15, I'm writing to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, as I said, this is one of what we call the pastoral epistles, along with 2 Timothy and Titus. It is, in a sense, a manual for Timothy himself and for all believers so that we might know and understand how we are to live for Jesus in the context of the local church. But Paul knows and demonstrates here, as he does throughout all his writings, that the way we live flows out of what we believe. You see that throughout the writings of Paul, where he constantly begins with doctrine, and then he moves into the application of that doctrine. And so in verse 16, he gives us 
what is really a summary of the Christian faith. In fact, what Paul gives us here seems to take the form of an early Christian creed. And that, that, that is the manner in which Paul is using it here. He's giving us a summary of Christianity. Now, as we look at it, you may be scratching your head this Easter Sunday morning, saying, where's the resurrection? And I want to show you that though it is not explicitly mentioned here, you're not going to find the word resurrection, this is a text in which the resurrection is absolutely central. So let's look at it together. For our purposes, we're going to look at it under three sections. Imagine it's a hymn with three stanzas, each stanza consisting of two lines. So stanza one, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. This teaches us about the meaning of the resurrection. Stanza two, seen by angels, proclaimed by proclaimed among the nations, tells us about the mission that arises from the resurrection. And then stanza three, believed on in the world, taken up in glory, reminds us of the mastery of Christ that is his by virtue of the resurrection. I'm not usually big on alliteration, but sometimes it just drops into your lap. And so... Here we have it, the meaning, the mission, and the mastery of the resurrection. Let's look at those first two lines, stanza one, the meaning of the resurrection. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Paul's talking about the earthly life and ministry of our Lord. And in these two lines, he really gives an admirable summary of the whole story. And notice how he begins. Isn't it a little surprising? If you were writing someone's biography, you would probably say, well, they were born in such and such a place at such and such a time, but that's not how Paul begins. He says, rather, he was revealed in the flesh. And we need to get the implication of that. Why does Paul put it that way? He's saying, in effect, that Jesus' story did not begin with his birth. The birth of Christ was not the beginning of Christ, but rather it was the revealing, the manifestation of the living God who took upon himself human nature. God stepped onto the scene of human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God revealed in the flesh. Or as John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And that's even more amazing when you think about that little phrase, the flesh. God manifest in the flesh. You see what it means. In Jesus, God is enfleshed. That is, he makes himself vulnerable. He makes himself subject to suffering. He makes himself subject to death. 
That's what happened when Jesus was revealed in the flesh. He got tired. He got hungry. He suffered. He died. You remember the story. It's what we've been seeing in our study in Matthew on Thursday mornings. The disciples abandoned him. Judas betrayed him. He was arrested, beaten, tortured, placed on trial on trumped-up charges. And although he himself was entirely without sin, Pilate caved under the pressure of the mob who were crying out for his blood. And he was handed over to the soldiers and he was nailed to that dreadful cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And it looks like abject final defeat for Jesus and for his mission. And as the darkness descends, with his last breath, all the messianic hopes of that little band of disciples who had begun to follow Jesus are shattered. The cross now seems to vindicate the claims of the religious elite who have been opposing Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, denouncing him as a charlatan. Look at him now, they would say, bleeding out in shame and ignominy, hanging there between criminals, the embodiment of failure. When the disciples had followed him over the three years of his public ministry, they had witnessed so much. They had heard Jesus' teaching. They had seen his miracles. Some of them had seen the outshining of his very glory there on the mountain. And they had believed. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said. But their faith was imperfect, as is ours. Now, they look at the cross and what do they see? Now they see the torn and lacerated body hanging on the cross, fighting for every breath. And it was enough to bring that earlier conviction crashing down upon the rocks of doubt. They saw the cross, and in seeing the cross, they saw not the favor and the love of God, but the utter condemnation and curse of God. They knew what the law said. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. And even Jesus seems to confirm that impression, at least in the minds of his onlookers, when he lifts his own voice and cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is a God-forsaken figure. Twice in his life, you remember, the Father spoke from heaven about Jesus. At his baptism and at his transfiguration. And he says the same thing both times. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But now, in the depths, in the abyss of his suffering, heaven is silent. The one who 
was revealed in the flesh is rejected by both the world and by his Father. And we ask why. Why did he undergo that dreadful ordeal? And hear the answer. Why Jesus endured all that he endured. Why he was God forsaken and despised and rejected of men. The answer comes that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God the sovereign judge, in infinite holiness, looks on Christ and considers him, the sinless one, to be the embodiment of sin and therefore treats him as the sin of the world deserves to be treated. He makes him to be sin, and he abominates him because he sees him as the embodiment of every abomination festering in my sinner's heart. He had no sin of his own, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to be my sin. God considers him to be guilty, guilty of my sin. And so God the Father damns Jesus Christ at the cross. He was revealed in the flesh, Paul says, and that revelation involves all of this. All the suffering, all the sin-bearing, all the agony, all the death. But that's not where it ends. Praise God. The cross is not the end. And after the condemnation of the cross, there is more. There is more to be revealed. And that which is to be revealed after the cross is again revealed in the flesh. That's what resurrection is. After the apparent defeat of the cross, there comes a great vindication. And that vindication comes in the flesh. The cross of Jesus Christ looks like utter, total defeat. But death does not have the last word. There is another word yet to be spoken, and that word was spoken on the Sunday morning following the Friday evening. There is a resurrection On the third day, the stone was rolled away, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is raised, vindicated, Paul says, in the Spirit. The word actually here in the text, vindicated, in or by the Spirit, the word that is translated vindicated is actually the word justified. He was justified by the Spirit. That is to say, the sinless one who was made to be sin and treated as though he were sin and abominated by the Father on account of my sin, the one that paid my price in full, that one satisfied the wrath of God, drank the dregs of the cup of God's wrath 
until there was nothing left. And having made full atonement, the Father raised him from the grave to declare to all the world that he is the righteous one, that his work is acceptable, and the salvation which he has come to accomplish is now secure. He is vindicated. He is justified. The cross, you see, was a word of condemnation spoken over Jesus. But the resurrection is a word of vindication. He is who he claimed to be. And he has accomplished what he came to do. He is our representative and substitute so that the death he dies and the condemnation that he bears, he dies for us who believe so that we would not face that condemnation. Because in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And the justifying verdict of God in the resurrection of Christ, he received not only for himself, but for us who believe in him so that As we trust him, the Father might count us righteous with the righteousness of Christ now imputed to us and received by faith alone. That is to say this, very simply, you can be forgiven today because Jesus lives. You can be forgiven today because Jesus lives. And that has astonishing implications. The other two stanzas of verse 16 help us understand some of those implications. Look with me at the second stanza. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. Here now is not just the meaning of the resurrection, but also the mission that arises in consequence of the resurrection. Disciples and angels alike saw the resurrection of Jesus. They met the risen Lord. Angels had ministered to Jesus at key points throughout his earthly ministry. You remember how at his birth, the heavens were full of the heavenly host. Torn open as the skies were filled with glory and these angels descend, praising God in the highest and pronouncing peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. You remember how in the days of his fasting, his 40 days in the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan and responds to Satan through the power of the scripture, the angels come and minister to him. And then triumphing over the grave and the glory of his resurrection, angels are present there as well, there at the empty tomb. He's not here. The angels told Mary and the other women who came to the tomb that Sunday morning. He is not here. He is risen. They are present as witnesses and and spectators to the great events of Jesus' life. But you see, in regard to angels, that is all they ever can be. It's an amazing thing. Angels can only be spectators and witnesses, looking on in wonder and amazement at that which they themselves can never really enter into. 
They are not the objects of God's redeeming love. They are sinless. They are unfallen. They are ministering spirits who serve God and do so faithfully. For God's holy angels, there is nothing to redeem. And so they watch in awe as God takes flesh. And they watch in awe as the enfleshed God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, takes the burden of sin and guilt and dies for sinners. And Paul says, he was seen by angels. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, these are things into which angels long to look. And and that word used of angels, longing to look, is the same word used by the Apostle John describing his experience that Easter Sunday morning when news reached them that the tomb was empty. And you remember what happened. He and Peter ran to the tomb. And John stoops and peers in and he's craning his neck to look into the empty tomb. Seeking to see what has happened. That's the word Peter uses. That's how Peter describes angels. They're they're craning their neck. Trying to see. Trying to understand. Peering in. Trying somehow. Straining every fiber to see if they can penetrate into the wonder of the mystery of God made flesh dying for sinners. Seen by angels. But the angels are merely observers looking on from the outside. The disciples, however, are Another thing altogether. For them, the resurrection was not merely an object of wonder and amazement. They had a personal interest in the resurrection. For them, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. You remember how on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, the disciples are there behind closed doors. For fear that they would be the next to be arrested and taken away to their deaths. They were cowering, terrified, discouraged, despairing, despondent. Their faith had crumbled and they're waiting for that knock on the door when the soldiers come to arrest them and it's their turn to be taken away. And then in John chapter 20, Jesus immediately comes and stands in the midst of them. And he says to them, peace. And he showed them his hands and his feet. He showed The nail marks. And there he stands alive and he gives them a mission. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Send them where? Send them to do what? See, Jesus is telling them, now that I live again, triumphant from the grave, everything changes. 
There's a word now for the world. A word of hope. A word of good news. I live. And I live to save sinners. And so as I have been sent by the Father and have now completed my mission, now I send you. I give you a mission as well. Proclaim among the nations that I was crucified, but I have risen. Tell them that I live, and because I live, all who believe in me will live as well. Remember, these disciples were despairing. They were broken. They were cowering in fear. Within 40 days, however, we find them standing in the public square in Jerusalem, proclaiming boldly to everyone gathered there that Jesus is alive. And then for the next 40 years, they suffer and bleed and die, proclaiming that message. And only the fact that Jesus came and stood in their midst can account for that extraordinary change that occurred in the disciples. As they came from fear to faith, from cowardice to missionary. Some of you know the story of Chuck Colson. He was one of President Nixon's top advisors during the Watergate scandal. Colson eventually went to jail as a result of his crimes and later through that experience came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior and he was wonderfully converted. This is Colson's comment on the resurrection. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that the 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And then add to that the fact that all but one died a martyr's death. The fact that Jesus Christ came to them alive, risen from the grave, changed everything. It made cowards into missionaries and then into martyrs. And so while angels merely see it, the disciples proclaim it among the nations. And so do we. At least we ought to. Brothers and sisters, since Jesus is alive, we have a mission that has been given to us. We refer to it often as the Great Commission. And the great question is, how can we keep this good news to ourselves How is it that our mouths are so often closed when we have such good news to proclaim among the nations? Jesus is alive. A perfect Savior for sinners. That's the mission which the risen Christ gives to us. 
And so in this creed of the early church, we've seen the meaning of the resurrection and the mission of the resurrection. And now in this next stanza, we see the mystery of the resurrection, the mastery, I should say, of the resurrection. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Perhaps Christ is beginning to exert his mastery over you this morning. Perhaps you're beginning to recognize your need, your need of forgiveness, your need of a savior. You've been carrying a burden of guilt before God and men for too long. Well, there's good news for you. The message of the resurrection is that sinners like me and like you can be justified. That is, you can have your guilt removed and your record wiped clean. The verdict that was spoken over Christ in his resurrection can be spoken over you. There's a way that the vindication of Jesus Christ, his justification, can count as yours. Paul tells us how in the text. Do you see it? He was believed on in the world. That's it. It's as simple as that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sin will be washed away and you will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of the risen Savior. He died and rose for sinners like me and sinners like you. And he is calling you this morning to trust in him. And look at the very last line. Taken up in glory. Having atoned for sinners, have been, having been raised in victory, God exalted Jesus to a place of kingly rule and lordship and authority. He was taken up in glory and he sat down at the right hand of the Father and was crowned as king over all. And everything was made his footstool. You see, it's the risen, reigning, triumphant Christ who is mighty to save, who offers salvation to sinners. You don't need anything else. The one who rose from the dead has done it all. Don't you take him at his word. Come and be mastered by King Jesus, who died and rose again for sinners. Bend your knee to him. Whether you do today or not, one day you will. Because one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Better you bend the knee now. And submit to his gracious, loving lordship. Than to bend the knee one day under his judgment. Trust in him. Put all your burden upon him. Put all your hope in him. He will make you clean. 
He will wash your guilt away. He will reconcile you to God. He will make you new. I don't know about you. But being made new sounds really good to me. Because I know what I am. I know who I am. I know what my heart is like. I am well aware of what I have said and done and thought. And the idea that I can be made new is glorious. And that promise is to all who will come and trust in him. Jesus, you see, is king. And as king, he is always faithful. He always keeps his promises. So when he says to you, just trust me. Just trust me and I will forgive you. Just trust me and I will make you clean. Just trust me and I will deal with your sin and your guilt and reconcile you to God. Just trust me and everything will be changed. You will never be the same again. Just trust me. You can trust him because he is always faithful and he has never said a false word. When he says that, as he is saying that to you now, you can believe him because he is God's great king and he always keeps his promises. Believe in the risen one who changes everything. Our Father, how we give thanks to you that Jesus is not dead. That though he died, he lives. And therefore we who believe in him, though we die, yet shall we live. And living and believing in him, we shall never die. Father, help us to trust in Christ that he might be believed on by us. This one who has been taken up in glory. We would be mastered by King Jesus today. And so we come to you, Father, and bend our knee. Have mercy on us. Grant that our true joy this Easter Sunday would not merely be because we're with loved ones and family. Would not merely be because we've so enjoyed singing together and being together but that it would be sourced far more fundamentally in the knowledge that we have been put right with you through the risen Lord who bore our guilt in his body on the tree and rose for our justification. We ask this because we know of the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing of our living Savior.
she lives I can face tomorrow Because he lives All fear is gone Because I know Who holds the future And life is worth the living just because he lives God sent his son they called him Jesus he came to love heal and forgive he lived and died to buy my pardon an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know Because he lives How sweet to hold A newborn baby And feel the pride And joy he gives But greater still The calm assurance can face uncertain days because he lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know Because he lives And then one day I'll cross the river I'll fight life's final war with pain And then as death Gives way to victory I'll see the light of glory And I'll know he reigns Because he lives I can face tomorrow Because he lives All fear is gone Because I know Because he lives
because he lives, I can face tomorrow because he lives. All fear is gone because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Amen. And now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. He is risen.